Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. American Glutton Podcast has a Patreon. Do you hate commercials? Well, we've got a Patreon. Do you want bonus episodes? That's on the Patreon. Do you want to hang out and chat in our Discord channel? That's part of the Patreon, too. We even have an option where you can leave me voicemails. All on the Patreon. So check it out today. Patreon.com slash American Glutton. We have a Patreon. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying this show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. I used to sit and weigh and measure everything out, and I don't do that anymore. You know why I don't do that anymore? Because Trifecta does it for me. All my long, arduous Sunday spent on meal prep, I don't do that anymore because I get a big box of portioned cooked food every week from them, and I don't have to get overly thoughtful about it. They have taken all that energy and done it for me. Thanks, Trifecta. Today on American Glutton, I'm having a conversation with James Clear. He's been writing at jamesclear.com about habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement since 2012. And he's the number one New York Times bestseller of Atomic Habits. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at James Clear. James Clear, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Talk to you too, dude. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, The biggest focus in my life of the last like 20 years has been weight loss and trying to basically become a new person. And within that, I think that the the hardest thing to change has been habits because for a short period of time, I can do anything differently and achieve some goal that I set for myself, like weight loss, X number of pounds. But if I don't like dramatically change my life entirely, the weight comes back. And this has been a cycle that I've been on forever. And I found that I actually kind of had to become a different person. So I wanted to talk to you about how habits affect identity, if that if that makes sense at all. Yeah, this is something I talk about in Atomic Habits a lot, that um, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So any day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Or if a student studies biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, they embody the identity of someone who's studious. And a lot of the time we talk about habits as mattering because of the external results they can get us. Habits will help you get fit or make more money or be more productive or reduce stress. And like all that stuff's true and it's great that habits can do that. But I think the real reason, the true reason that habits matter is that they 
reshape your sense of self that give you a new story to tell yourself about who you are and what's normal for you. And every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence may not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And individually, those are small things, but collectively they start to add up. You kind of build up this little body of evidence as you start casting votes on the pile. And I think, you know, you sort of have two options. You could just somehow magically flip a switch and be like, oh, no, I'm a totally different person now. And I'm not saying that's impossible, like it could happen, but I don't know that it's a very a process that you can design very well. Um, whereas my encouragement, my suggestion is to say, Hey, let's start with something small. Let's start with something reasonable and keep casting votes on the pile. And each day that you do that little thing, each day that you meditate for one minute, you are a meditator. And eventually if you keep doing that, you have every reason in the world to believe it. So the real goal is not to like run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. You know, the goal is not to read a book goal is to become a reader. And the more that you kind of reshape that identity that you have, I think the easier it becomes to stick to those habits and behaviors. Somebody who views themselves as I am a runner, they don't have to motivate themselves to go for a run in the same way that somebody who's just getting started does. You know, it's kind of like, no, like this is just part of what I do. This is part of how I see myself. And I think the real key is beginning to take pride in that aspect of your identity. You know, if you take pride in like the size of your arms, you'll never skip arm day at the gym. You take pride in like how your hair looks. You'll have like this really dramatic and long-winded hair routine, you know, all kinds of products that you use and everything. And whatever it is that you take pride in about yourself, it's easier to perform those habits and behaviors because it's such a deeply ingrained part of your story. So I think ultimately that's kind of where we're hoping to get to with behavior change is let me shape an identity that serves me. Let me shape an identity that I feel good about, that I believe in, and try to build habits that reinforce my desired identity. This, this is amazing. And, and I think that this is exactly what I'm what I'm thinking with. Uh, I, I want to imagine myself a guy who goes to the gym in if that is if that is the goal, a guy who's fit or, or whatever I come up with. Do you think that the um, the attainment of that requires very specific formulas or is it just like I'm going to start? Do you think because like for me, when I started to get really serious about my diet, I, I wrote everything down. I did a lot of math and cut to today, years later, I don't have to do that anymore. And I'm just a guy who eats better. But I, it, but it did require that in the beginning. Is that something you'd suggest for people starting out? Yeah, it's interesting thinking about that. I, I don't really know much specifically about like the dieting weight loss part. But like uh, one example from my personal life is like as a writer, I was really uh, tactical or strategic or very numbers focused early on. So on uh, like number of words per day that I would write, or whenever I would write a new article, I would force myself to brainstorm 25 new titles every time. And without fail, like the most interesting title was always number like 17 or 22 or something. You know, it's never the first idea you have. And I don't do that now, you know, that I've been writing for 10 years, but I feel like there was that period early on where I kind of had to go through that. Um, I do still track my workouts in the gym. Uh, so that's like one area that I've been tracking for a long, long time and I still find it useful. But I think even in the gym, uh, the phrase that I would always come back to is um, volume before intensity. So I was always trying to like, let's keep the weights low, but let's build up volume. Let's build up the capacity to handle the work. And then I'll try to, you know, max out like a year from now or something, you know, once I actually have the ability to handle that. Um and so I think that's kind of similar to what you're getting at here, uh, which is it well, requires some effort early on to develop the skills. And then once you have the skills, maybe you don't need to track it quite as carefully. Yeah, I, I think your point about writing is is a perfect analogy, because I think that, like, I still track my workouts, too. But that is something um, for a very specific reason, because I can't always remember, you know, if I do six workouts this week. And I do, you know, I wind up doing nine sets of total chest. I can't remember exactly how many reps I did. And I want yeah, to make I sure. remember in the same workout, you know, right. like I'll be in the middle of the set and it'll be like, was that number three or number four? I don't sure. Even know. So it's good to write it down. Exactly. But for like, you know, if I'm largely eating, you know, four meals a day and I'm having eight ounces of lean protein per meal, I no longer need a scale to determine 
what that looks like. That's that's more what I'm talking about. So, but in the beginning, I really did. I I didn't know what that looked like. And to your point about writing, I I imagine you still do not choose the first title. You're still probably right. doing some brainstorming. Whether you sit down and go, I'm doing 25 or not, it's still that has become a, a habit. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's not quite as formulaic as it used to be, but the the practice is still there. And I think one of the benefits of forcing yourself to do some of those things like write down 25 titles or, you know, jur uh, journal every meal that you're, you know, kick down every calorie is that it develops your, um, I'm going to say taste, but not not in like the, you know, food sense, just your your like feel for the craft. You know, it, it helps you, it helps hone your powers of observation and you develop a better barometer for what success does or doesn't look like for you. And as you start to refine that, then maybe you don't need the formula as much uh, or the template as much, but you, it's because you're, um, you're more attuned to what works and what doesn't. Yeah. If, if we, if we think about um, our habits being a part of who we are, is there, is there something to this this idea that I get sometimes every time I, I start a fat loss phase of my diet and something gets reduced, I feel this uh, I feel like I'm less versus if it happened gradually over time where that was just taken out unbeknownst to me, I think it wouldn't register at all. Do you deal with that having having some way to fight that or combat that? I think there's a lot, uh, there are a lot of examples of that throughout life, which is if you try to change in a radical way, you're shifting so much at once that it's almost like the rebound back is just as hard or harder than it was before. Um, you know, homeostasis just as like a biological principle is a core aspect of how the world works of how the human body works. Like there's so many things that have a baseline level and many things like physically in your body, but also just in the world in general are there are many forces working to kind of maintain that baseline, you know, like things like biological systems, like stability. Um, and so that stability allows you to, you know, function properly and so on. And if you try to push too far beyond what your baseline is, then there's a lot of forces that try to like tug you back. And I think we can, even if it's not a perfect analogy, we can kind of say that's true about habits as well, that if you try to push too hard with the changes that you make, there's a lot of forces in your life that will start tugging you back and feel like, wow, this is a really radical shift. But if you just make an incremental change, if you make a small adjustment, then it's small enough that you can like start to adapt around it. You can start to live with it. You can start to figure out a new normal around that because it wasn't that big of a deal. And then once you have this kind of like new baseline, you can make another small advancement from there. And this is, you know, um, there are a few different core ideas in atomic habits, but this is definitely one of the concepts. It's like, Hey, let's make small, reasonable, non-threatening changes that you can integrate into your new lifestyle. And then once you've gained a little foothold at that higher level, you can advance to the next step too. And, um, there's this, there's this little example I give in the book. I call it the two minute rule. It's a strategy you can use for building a good habit or breaking a bad one. And super simple. It just says, take whatever habit you're trying to create and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist it a little bit because they're like, okay, buddy, you know, I know the real goal is just to like take my yoga mat out. I know I'm actually trying to do the workout, right? So this is some kind of mental trick. Why would I fall for it basically? And I get where people are coming from, but I have this guy, this reader, his name's Mitch. I mentioned him in the book. And he lost over 100 pounds and has kept it off for more than a decade now. And when he first started going to the gym, he had this strange little rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. Wow. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it seems silly. It seems ridiculous. You're like, oh, this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up. You know, he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And this is like a pretty fundamental truth about habits, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, you have to make it the standard in your life before you can scale it up and optimize it into something more. And just that little example of driving to the gym and being there for five minutes, four days a week, mastering the art of showing up, 
man, that's so much smaller than what a lot of us try to do when we feel motivated to go to the gym and get in shape. We're like, okay, I got to get the perfect like 45 minute workout plan. I'm going to go four days a week. And like, it starts out as this like pretty intense thing at the beginning. And so the homeostasis in your life, the baseline level that you're used to living at day in and day out. Now all of a sudden you have this kind of like radical shift. You got to find 45 minutes every day that you didn't have before. You are probably at the end of the first week, you're sore. You feel uncomfortable in the gym. You're not sure if you're doing it the right way or if you belong or like, you know, whatever. And so there's a lot of forces kind of tugging you back to that typical baseline. Whereas going for five minutes is not nothing, um, but it's much easier to integrate into your daily routine and to be like, okay, I'm just kind of trying to get comfortable with being here. I'm trying to like develop a feeling that this is my territory. I can fit this in. Um, I know where I'm going to go and when I'm going to work out and all that. So there are many ways that you can have examples of that, but I do think it's something to see from time to time with habits. I think it's really brilliant. Um, largely because I think the majority of areas in my life where I can look at that I've failed, it, it has been mostly through a way I communicated with myself about what I wanted. And, Mm -hmm. and it would be stuff like, you know, like how you're talking about master showing up. Once you have that as a fundamental, it it kind of that doesn't go away. So if you miss a day in the gym, you still have this habit or this habitual state of going back versus like I never would decide that I want to be a person who shows up. So Mm -hmm. I, I just grind through something to some kind of goal and haven't laid a foundation for anything else in my life. So the goal goes away very quickly because I haven't posited how to keep it there. That's interesting. I Sometimes I'll talk about that as there's kind of like this yo-yo pattern with habits. You know, somebody signs up for a half marathon. So then they train for six months because they have the race coming up and then they do the race and maybe they're wrong with their friends or have a good time or whatever. And then, you know, a week goes by, they rest from the race, then a month goes by and then they turn around like three or four months later. And like, man, I haven't run in four months. I was like, I ran for six months straight. And it's if you make it all about grinding toward this result, grinding toward this, you know, um, competition or achievement or whatever it is, then you don't have the identity behind it. You don't have the mindset behind it to show up again. Whereas like to use the example from earlier, the person who's like, no, I'm a runner. Well, the half marathon gets done and they're like, well, that was fun to do the race with my friends, but like, I'm going to keep running next week because that's just part of who I am. Like that's, that's what I do. So I think, again, it comes back to focusing on identity a little bit more and on results a little bit less. Do you, do you find anything in, in looking at all this where people want um, success in an area before they even start to try to define these habits? Like, I want to lose weight before I'm a person who goes to the gym. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I want to have business success before I'm a person who keeps a good business schedule or goes to school or something. I mean, partially, I think it's kind of normal to the results are what attract us to things a lot of the time. You know, I mean, most people, they see the results that other people are having, whether it's health or money or, you know, whatever relationships, like all kinds of things. And then they kind of like copy and paste themselves into that situation. And they're like, oh, that'd be cool if I had that. And so it's kind of the results that are alluring. And partially, I think this is a consequence of just how information is distributed in society. I like the news and social media. Generally speaking, things are only discussed when they're a result, not the process. So like you'll never see a news story that's like man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. It's only a story once it's like man loses 100 pounds or you'll never hear like uh, you know, screenwriter sat down and wrote for 30 minutes today. It's only a story when it's like Broadway show becomes a hit. And so the results of life are highly visible and widely discussed. And I think for that reason, we kind of overvalue the results and the process, the system behind all of that is undervalued and under discussed and usually hidden from view. And so we tend to think less about how we're actually living our daily lives and what kind of process or system we're following But it's kind of this ironic thing, which is in most areas of life, to a large degree, your outcomes are a lagging measure of the habits that preceded them. So your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even silly stuff like the amount of clutter in your garage or living room is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so we also badly want better results in life 
but the results are not really the thing that needs to change. It's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Fix the the habits that preceded the outcome and you'll be carried to a different destination. And this is what I consider to be another core idea of the book, which is you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And so it's easy to see the results and set a goal for yourself. It's very common, it's very attractive and totally understandable. Like I've done it a thousand times myself, but um, you don't actually rise to the goals that you set. You fall to the systems that you follow, to the habits that you perform each day. Do you think that that, just thinking about the workload of this, like I, I talk to a lot of people who get into fad diets and have, you know, can lose some weight and then put it back on and get into this yo-yo period where they're ultimately having harder time losing weight into the future. And I find more often than not that people just want something easy. And, and, and while the way you explain this to me sounds very straightforward and very easy. In fact, the gradient approach sounds even easier than trying to do something radical all at once it just requires so many more steps to get to whatever that goal is that we're searching for. Yeah. I mean, it takes a great deal of patience. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be hard on any given day, but it does require patience and it requires consistency. It requires the right mindset, the right um, attitude, I guess you could say. And um, you know, one of the, the laws that I have a couple laws in the book for building good habits. And one of them is make it easy. Well, that doesn't mean only do easy things. It means make it as easy as possible to work on the things that pay off in the long run. And so you still have to have this mindset of, I'm going to work towards something that's meaningful to me. I'm going to try to optimize for the things that I say are important to me. I'm going to prioritize the things that are going to pay off in the long run. So this mindset of like delay gratification, I mean, you still have to practice that. That's still hard. And there's also this quality that habits have, which is we kind of assume or hope maybe that if we put in a little bit of work, we'll get a little bit of results. So kind of a linear sort of process. But in fact, most habits, the hallmark of them is that the returns are often delayed. You keep showing up day in and day out. You know, you're like, I've been running for a month. I still can't see a change in my body. Or we've been meeting at work for six months on this project and the product still hasn't shipped. Or I've been writing this manuscript for nine months and the book is still a mess. Like that kind of stuff happens all the time throughout life. And um, as you're performing these habits, you need to hold on to that mindset that your initial work, if you haven't seen results right away, it's not being wasted. It's just being stored. And I like the metaphor of like an ice cube. You know, you like walk into a room, it's cold. You can see your breath. Let's say it's like 25, 26 degrees. You got this ice cube sitting on the table and you start to heat the room up 27, 28, 29, 30 ice cubes still sitting there, 31, 32. And then you get to 32 degrees and it's like this one degree shift, no different than the ones that had just come before, but suddenly you hit this phase transition and the ice cube melts. And the process of building good habits and trying to get better results in different areas of life, it's often kind of like that. You know, it feels like if you're complaining about working for three months and not having the results that you want yet, it's kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube from 25 to 30 degrees and it not melting yet. You know, it's like the right. work is not wasted. It's just, it's baked in. You just got to keep showing up before it uh, releases and you hit this phase transition. And not every area of life works exactly like that, but I find that that mindset is a useful one to hold on to because results are usually not linear. There are usually is some kind of delay or some sort of uh, delayed gratification that needs to be practiced before they start to show up. Is there a formula for somebody to go like, I'm going to become a different person, you know, like I'm going to become a runner. I'm going to become a business person or I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. because like for me, if I, I I can give you all my reasons on why I can't run. Right. But I do, I do agree with you that I could become a runner even in my state with my bad knees and my bad ankles, I could still become a runner, even if that just meant I ran five minutes a day. Um, but, but there's part of me that's fighting that concept of an identity shift. Yeah. Well, so first of all, and I think this is, I don't think this is what you're saying, but I think it's worth mentioning out loud, which is just, there are many ways to do most things in life. There, there may not be a thousand ways to get a particular result, but there's almost always more than one way. And so you don't have to be anything other than what you're interested in being, you know, like there's, 
there are many uh, working out is like such a common example for habits, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to, I like strength training, but not everybody has to train like a bodybuilder, you know, like you can fly, go rock climbing or kayak or go for hikes or ride a bike, or there's like a million things that you could do, you know? So I think that is an important part of the process to choose the version of a habit or the version of your identity that brings you the most joy that you feel like is the best fit for you. Cause if you're playing to your strengths, if you're playing to your interests, it's so much easier to continue to improve, you know, in a, in a large, to a large degree, the first hurdle or maybe the biggest hurdle is to find what you are fascinated with, because if you're fascinated with it, if you're interested, then there are almost always endless opportunities to improve. But if you're not interested, if you're just forcing yourself to do it, even the obvious opportunities to improve are going to feel like a chore. So I think being invested is an important part. Now, your actual question was like, is there a framework for this? My view is that there is no one way to build better habits. There are many ways. And what I try to do in the book is lay out like a toolkit of strategies and to say, hey, here's a wrench and here's a screwdriver and here's a hammer. And your job is to say, you know what, for my situation or for what I'm interested in, I think the wrench is the best fit or I think the hammer is the best fit. But in order to do that, I did try to create kind of like a four-step framework for building good habits and breaking bad ones. And I think it's interesting, actually, your question you asked, is there a framework for becoming a new kind of person or for shaping a new type of identity? And my view is that the way to do that is by casting those votes, by building those small habits. So I I think the framework for reshaping an identity is really the framework for like building small habits. Yeah. And roughly speaking, if you, I'll just give you like the really high level and we can go into it in detail if you want, but um, there are kind of four things that you want to be happening for you. If you want to build a good habit, you want it to be obvious. So you want the cues of your habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. You want it to be attractive, the more attractive or appealing a habit is, like I was just saying a moment ago, the more excited you are about it, the more likely it is to you know be desirable to you or you'll feel motivated to do it. The third law is to make it easy, which is what we just talked about a minute ago. Convenient, frictionless, simple. The simpler a habit is, the more likely it is to be performed. And then the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying. The more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more pleasurable or rewarding it is, the more likely we are to return to it in the future. So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. Now, if you're sitting there, if you're a listener kind of listening to this right now and you're thinking. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Man, you know, I have this habit. I just keep procrastinating on it. I can't seem to like get going. I'm having trouble falling through. Or, um, you know, if you're like, 
uh, you can even think about it in like a business context or in a family context. Oh man, you know, I wish my family would do this behavior more consistently, or I wish that our employees would like follow through on this. They only do it every now and then. You can just go through these four steps and ask yourself, how can I make the behavior more obvious? How can I make it more attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those questions will reveal different steps that you can take for kind of increasing the odds that the habit's going to occur. And you don't always need all four and you don't always need uh, them to be working at the same time. But if you ask yourself those four questions, you'll often find at least a couple of different things that you could do to try to kind of stack the deck in your favor and improve the odds that you'll fall through. Yeah, I've I've become a different person a couple of times in my life. I'm a sober person. I've been sober for decades now. And that was a very radical shift that required like a total makeover. So it's like hit the ground running and you're now going to reshape your life. Like, I don't know how I start to do this very incrementally. It has to be one fell swoop because the little bit if yeah. I allowed myself out, they- how did you, how did you do that one? Did you like move to a different city or did you fire a bunch of friends, so to speak? Or, like, I, yeah. Well, I went, I went to rehab. I, I had to extract myself from my environment. And then when I came back into my environment months later, after being in rehab for months, yeah. I, I, you know, I had to have people go and clean out my house and, and then I moved not too long after that. And, and yeah, I was going to say, did you go back to the same place or you moved to a new, it was a new city or a new part of town or what? New, new, I went back to the same place and that very quickly proved to be too tenuous for me. And so yeah. I then had to, eat. but so all of that is like, you know, it, it's kind of being thrust into an environment where you're learning how to do this. And then food is a little bit different because you can't, there's no abstinence from food. And so it is kind of like cobbling together this new identity. But I, but I do wish I'd known of you 20 years ago because <laughs> there have been so many iterations of how I think to do this. And now largely, you know, over decades, I kind of learned to do a version of this that seems even more complicated in my head than what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. you would have been very unimpressed with teenage me. But um, <laughs> I so I, I actually think, though, what you're what you're sharing, which thank you for sharing it, by the way, what you're talking about, um, it reveals a really interesting and important thing related to habits, which is that. Usually, if you were to ask an academic or a researcher or something, hey, what is a habit? They're going to describe like these pretty much automatic and mindless behaviors. Hey, it's, you know, brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or something like that. But a different way to define what a habit is, I think sometimes a more useful way, is it's a behavior that's tied to a particular context. So in the case of your, you know, drinking habit, it was like pretty tied to where you were living and who you were hanging out with and the house and all of that stuff. And you had this radical shift in order to kind of break that habit or change that habit. But that same kind of environmental connection, that same kind of connection to context, that's true for all types of habits. And so I think one really interesting thing you can do, you know, just like keep one habit in mind that you're trying to build and then walk into the rooms where you spend most of your time each day, your living room, your kitchen, your office, whatever, and look around and ask yourself what behaviors are obvious here. What behaviors are easy here? What is this space designed to encourage? And you're going to start to notice some things that you could tweak. And, you know, sometimes it's really little things. Like, for example, when I wanted to start reading more, I downloaded Audible for audiobooks and I moved it to the home screen on my phone. And then I moved all the other apps to the second screen. So that was like the first thing that I would see. And that's a really small shift, but it's just a subtle reminder that, hey, what I'm trying to do here is spend a little bit more time reading. Um and other times it could be more radical, like you throw out your TV or something, you know, but individually, none of those changes are going to be um, a dramatic shift in your habits. But collectively, if you start to refine and reorganize the environment where you live, you can imagine a dozen or two dozen or 50 little tweaks like that. And all of a sudden you're swim- swimming with the current rather than trying to swim upstream. You know, you're not fighting your environment as much anymore to build those habits. And that can be a really useful strategy, this kind of environment design idea. And so, yeah, sometimes it might be that you need a pretty radical shift. You need to move to a new apartment or you need to move to a different part of the city or whatever. 
um, change jobs, you know, blah, blah, blah. And other times it could just be, Hey, maybe if I can accumulate a couple subtle shifts here, the thing that was like really hard for me won't be as hard anymore. Um, I'm like everybody else. If I have my phone on me, I'll check it every three minutes just because it's there. And so I try to implement this rule for myself. I don't do it all the time, but I probably do it 80 or 90% of the time where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And so I have the morning to work on just my agenda rather than responding to everybody else's or browsing Twitter or looking at Instagram or whatever. And I have a home office. So my phone is only like 30 seconds away. It's just down the hallway, you know, but I never go get it. And I'm like, it's such a strange thing. Did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was right next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it so bad that I would walk 30 seconds down the hallway and go get it. And you'd be surprised how many behaviors can be curtailed to the desired degree if you just make a couple environmental tweaks like that. So anyway, kind of a long-winded tangent there, but I, I think you had a good example and it applies to not just extreme habits like quitting drinking and stuff, but also just anything that you're trying to build, prime the environment to make that action obvious and easy. But, it, but even the way you're talking about it, I think is a more eloquent way than my mind does it because my mind is kill everything that can assist in the habit that I don't want versus enhance everything that can assist mm. in the habit that I do want. I think uh, one a fascinating is, distinction because yeah. like, uh, imagine that you have like a, um, let's say you got a plant that you don't want in your garden. You got some weeds and stuff, you know, and like, you're kind of in the like, let's de-weed mode, you know, like yeah. we're just going to yank everything out that shouldn't be here. But another way that plants work is like, if a plant gets a little more sunlight or a little more water, the, that plant will crowd out the others, you know, yeah. it will continue to grow. And I'm more on like the crowded outside. Like let's make, let's try to, um, feed the good plants in our lives as much as possible and let them grow and not worry too much about the bad habits. I, you know, I say that with a little bit of hesitation because certainly there are many strategies for breaking bad habits in the book. And I think it's a very useful thing, but I do think for myself, whether this is right or wrong, I don't know, but my tendency is to focus on how do we promote the good habits first and let that kind of grow and take up space in your life. And then a lot of the bad habits sort of naturally fade to the side as you, as you go through that process. Yeah, I think any, uh, as you said, there's a thousand ways to accomplish anything. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but there's, th yeah. I don't, I don't believe in one sole way, but, but to that point, you know, if somebody in the gym asks me a guy who was 550 pounds and, and wouldn't go to the gym until I'd lost 150 pounds and suddenly I'm at the gym and somebody asks me, Hey, could you help me with form? And I'm like, what you're asking me? That kind or tells me that I look good. That kind of positive reinforcement will go way further in keeping me going than somebody going like you look like shit, right? Or you don't look good enough. So I'm very much react better to positive stimulus than negative. Now, there could be somebody who's like, I want people to, you know, say mean things to me and that'll get me fired up. That's fine. That's not how it's been for me. But I think like knowing that about myself, it's funny that I go into these things in an almost angry, negative way. Like I got to kill everything versus what you're talking about, which I think is uh, laying praise on positive reinforcements. It's it's just a really interesting perspective shift that I, I'm excited to utilize. Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of important points for building habits too. There's So this is something that I refer to as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that get rewarded, get repeated, and behaviors that get punished, get avoided. And so, you know, you are definitely not uh, unique or alone in enjoying positive reinforcement. I mean, we all, all humans like to feel good. You know, we like to be praised. We like to be rewarded. We like to be applauded for what we're doing or, or the effort that we're giving. And so, the more that you can have some of those positive forces, those positive emotions, reinforcing the habits that you're building, the more you're going to want to show up. Um, and I think this can be one of the most powerful forces to capture for sticking to a habit for a long amount of time, um, which is the power of the social environment. If you can build friends, if you can join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior, yeah. it becomes much easier to stick to that for the long run. You know, like, 
every group that we are a part of, every we we all belong to many tribes, large and small. Some of those tribes are really big, like what it means to be American. Some of those tribes are small, like what it is to be a neighbor on your street or a member of the local CrossFit gym or a volunteer at the elementary school or whatever. Um, but all of those groups have a set of shared expectations for how you act in that group, for how you behave in that space. And when behaviors go with the grain of the expectations of the group, they're much more attractive to stick to because they signal to the people around you, hey, I get it. I fit in. I belong. And belonging is one of the deepest needs that we all have. I and mean, we all want to connect and bond and be a part of something, even if it's just like your little family unit, you know, like everybody wants to be part of something. And um, if people have to choose between, you know, I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I belong, I'm part of something. Or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. I mean, a lot of the time, the desire to belong will overpower the desire to improve. You know, like people will choose belonging over loneliness. So as best as possible, you want to get those two things aligned, to join groups, to build relationships, to connect with a couple people who share the things that you are hoping to, you know, have be a part of your life too. And then you can kind of rise together. You can build those habits together. And um, you don't even have to do it in like a formal accountability partner way, you know, where it's like, hey, let's go run together at the park. Or like, you know, it doesn't have to be that. But if the people around you are into that thing and you see them doing it more consistently, then you're just naturally kind of going to be tugged a little bit toward doing it yourself. So that's a, I think that's a powerful way to get that positive reinforcement over a very long time span in a way that like maybe won't um, fade the way that some of the other habit building strategies or procrastination strategies would, because they're a little more short term. They like, they're good for getting you going this week, but they're not necessarily going to motivate you two years from now. Uh, but the relationships piece, that'll, that'll be there for a long time. Yeah. I also think that there's a lot of, you know, I don't know about like other habits that people want to do, like being business people or whatever, but a lot of the stuff that I struggle with sobriety and, and, uh, being physically healthier and, and physically fit. There's a lot of evidence that that the opposite side of that is socially contagious. So like getting a fellowship of sober people who recognize the potential for not being sober and how it can damage your, your life and who are of a similar mind as you, that can be so beneficial. And, you know, I've in the same way feel this way about um weight loss is that like you know if if everyone around me was eating mcdonald's three times a day and i was the one guy who's going like i'm gonna have a salad or you know i'm gonna eat some lean chicken breast and rice that's gonna get hard just because of your environment and the and the relationships you're surrounded with and 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 that becomes difficult too because like a, a lot of this stuff is familial and you'll have like a spousal partnership where one is just not interested in that change. Um, so, so it is kind of a lot to think about and grapple with. Yeah, that part's tough, you know, like, and that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say like join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Cause if it's normal there, then great. It's so much easier to stick to, but if something else, if the opposite is normal, then I, I don't know. Like I know for my personality, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to like, you know, or make people feel awkward or weird. Like I, you know, I'm not trying to be the one person at dinner who's not eating the same thing as other people. Like there, yeah, there's like a communal thing there, you know, there's a social connection and um, it's tough when you force yourself into that kind of trade-off where it's like, do I do the thing that I want to do for me? Or do I do the thing that uh, goes along well with the group? And everybody is going to face those trade-offs in life. The, it's impossible to never face it. Um, and that's just part of what it means to live in a community or live in a family and be with other people. But uh, as best as possible, you want to find spaces that support the things you're trying to build. And sometimes, I, I don't necessarily think, sometimes it does mean maybe you need a radical shift, but I don't necessarily think it always means you need to like, hey, totally get rid of the people in your life or whatever. It could just mean that for the at this hour when you're practicing the habit, maybe you need to go somewhere else for it. You know, like nobody else in your, uh, none of your other roommates care about writing. Maybe you join a writing group and you go there for an hour. Or if nobody else that you're living with wants to do yoga, great. You can go to a yoga studio and go there for an hour and be surrounded by people who want to do that thing. And it becomes easier to stick to it. So, um, yeah, 
creating spaces or joining groups uh, can be a, a useful strategy. Hundred percent, yes. And my wife drinks. I don't drink. Um, it, it might be a little more difficult, like if she did drugs, and and I'm trying to maintain the path I'm on. She, this is that is not the case. But she drinks alcohol, which I don't do. And for a couple years, you know, two decades ago, there was no alcohol in our house, and it was kind of understood, like however fragile this state is for him, I'm not going to make it harder. So I'm just going to lay off. And we didn't even explicitly discuss this. However, now, decades later, when there's plenty of alcohol in our house and it's not an issue for me, there are times occasionally where I have to go like, hey, um, you know, when we're watching Game of Thrones on Sunday night, I'm dieting now. Can we not have you eating ice cream in bed while we watch the show? Because it becomes very difficult. I need to have a bite. And let's just, you know, it's not going to be forever. And she's like, yeah, no problem. And so that kind of conversation, if she was the type who would just say, like, no, go to hell. I'm eating my ice cream. That might become difficult, you know, and maybe I have to not watch the show with her. Maybe that's my responsibility then too, Mm -hmm. um, to not mess with her enjoyment of her ice cream. That's great, though. I think the most important thing is you're communicating about it, you know, and so you can figure out a solution that works for you all, you know, whether it's you not watching the show or her not eating the ice cream or whatever. And, you know, there's always going to be new things popping up too. you know, there'll be some other scenario three years from now. But if you communicate about it and everybody's on the same page and you talk about it, then usually there's a strategy that can get figured out. Um, if you don't talk about it and then you just start to resent her and she's like, why are you mad? And then she resents you. And then, you know, it just kind of like spirals from there. And it's like, man, if we just talked about this, we could have, you know, had it much easier. Yeah. But I think it goes along with the whole thing where like, if I had just started to try to affect these small things, like if in 2001, when I was 550 pounds, I had had this idea, like, I just want to be a person who exercises. And I started working towards that then in a very kind of uh, compared to today, it would have been microscopic because I just couldn't have done what I do today. That's fine, though. Um, It took me decades to, you know, white knuckle my way to this state where I'm thinking about your formulas and I'm going, that makes so much sense. And I did a version of that, but I added so much complexity to it. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It's been this is a very interesting conversation because I think you have kind of proved out quite a few of the points that are in the book. What you've done over the last 20 years, and I've I've heard from a lot of readers who are like this, you know, people are like, hey, I, you know, I've run 10 marathons. I did exactly what you said in there. And I, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. And that always makes me feel really good because it's like, oh, I feel like that's the ultimate test of an idea is does it work in practice? Is this really how it how it goes in real life? So uh, it's been very cool for me to hear you talk about this kind of process and journey you've been on. And there are a variety of things you brought up where I'm like, yep, that like that's that principle. This is, you know, you're like practicing this. Um, and but it's also very nice of you to say that I, in a lot of ways, I'm not really sharing anything new. You know, like most of what is in the book has been talked about many, many times before. My goal is just to try to write about it in a way that's easy to understand and apply. Maybe you hear it and you're like, oh, you know, I never quite heard it put that way before. Or there's a little bit of a different like line of attack for this. Like, I I know that idea, but maybe this gives me a new way to apply it. And if I can do that, then I feel like, okay, great. The book is useful and, you know, people get value out of it. So um, I appreciate you saying that. No, it is so useful because I think the, the, the fact that it is, there is a lot of common sense. You've said a few things where I've just gone like, God damn, that's exactly it. That's my entire journey but mine was really difficult and the way you've said it if i had been thinking with that in the beginning Mm. i do think the way we think about things is so important you know like prior to all of this i would think about the way i live my life today as utterly exhausting so much effort that it would have been like no that's too much work and the reality is that the way I was existing back then was five times the work that I'm doing today just to move around in the world at that weight. And so thinking about it in a different way can make it much easier, I think. Mindset is a funny thing. Um, 
I don't think it's like a magical pill or a switch where it's like, Hey, just think about it this way. And then it won't be any work. Like you still have to put the effort in, you know, it sure. still, it still requires a, a good degree of work and effort. But, um, I do think it can lighten the load a little bit. And I do think that it can position you better to deal with setbacks or failures or slip ups, which are going to happen to all of us. And if you have the right mindset, then maybe you can handle that a little bit easier and not, not berate yourself for it. Or maybe you don't spiral into like self-loathing as much, or maybe you can just um, see it as a mistake and move on and, you know, bounce back. Um, there's one, when I was in college, I played baseball and uh, our strength coach had this little like thing that he would tell us sometimes. And basically my summary of it now is, you know, you wake up a lot of the time and uh, you look at your day and you're like, all right, you know, I have to like make breakfast for my kids. Like uh, I have to take them to school and drop them off. And then I have to go to work and I have to, you know, file this report and then I have to work out. And his big thing was like, let's just flip that. And instead of saying, I have to say, you get to, you know, I get to wake up, I get to make my kids breakfast. I get to drop them off at school. I get to go to work. I get to file this report. I get to work out. And you know, again, that's a small thing. It doesn't save you any of the effort that you have to put in. Still got to make the breakfast, still got to do the workout, still got to work all day. Like the effort is the same, but it shifts it from feeling like a burden or an obligation into maybe an opportunity or something that, you know, my mom often says like, you don't have to look very far to see things to be grateful for. And like, we all know many people who are struggling, you know, having a really hard time right now, or who have had to deal with something that, you know, they didn't ask for. And you don't usually have to look far to find a little bit of gratitude in your life and to reframe all these things that you're doing. You know, it's like there are a lot of people out there who'd probably like to have the day that you're about to have right now. Um, and if you can shift that mindset, then maybe it makes the the work doesn't mean you don't work or it doesn't require effort, but maybe it makes it a little bit easier to carry the load. hundred percent. I think the way we posit uh, whether something's good or bad, I think for me the ideas of good or bad are only ever subjective it's only uh, my value on what it is and so i can change my values i change my mind about stuff all the time i can decide something is good and try to figure out how that's true as a backup to just wanting it to be true um is there some average uh or mean period of time that you have found that it generally takes people to form a new habit because the other thing that i would get concerned about is trying to go into this and going like well what am i doing this for two years before habit set or or, or, or it being utterly ambiguous yeah yeah if you knew how long it would take you'd never get started right yeah I, um, I think there are a lot of things in life that are like that, man. If I knew how long it was going to take to write a book, I'm like, what? Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market done it i don't know but um there are answers to this so there's a lot of there are a lot of myths there are a lot of like just kind of common things you hear people say you know it takes 21 days or takes 30 days or takes 90 days or whatever like you hear all kinds of stuff um there have been studies done on it there was one study done at university college in london that found that it took about 66 days on average for a habit to form. Now, the way that the researchers are measuring this is they, it's what they call an automaticity curve. So it's like how automatic does the behavior be, 
excuse me, how automatic does the behavior become? And you can imagine that the range varies depending on the habit that you're performing. So something really easy, like drinking a glass of water at lunch every day. Well, that might only take three or four weeks or something like that. Whereas something more difficult, like running a mile after work every day. I mean, that might take seven or eight or nine months. And so I don't know that 66 days really tells you very much. That was just the average across the things that they looked at. Um, what I like to say is the true answer, the honest answer to how long <laughs> does it take to build a habit is forever. Because right. if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And what I'm trying to get to with that is that you're looking for a small change, a non-threatening change, a lifestyle change, something that you can like make part of what you do on a daily basis. You know, it's not habits are not like a finish line to be crossed where it's like, hey, let me just do this for 30 days and then I'll be a healthy person or let me let me just do this for 66 days and then i'll have a successful business um you know it's a lifestyle to be lived and i think once you start looking at it through that lens maybe it takes the pressure off a little bit where you're not trying to get to something to x goal by a certain date you're not trying to like predict the future so much and instead you're just saying how can i live a good day today and can I find a small change that I can make, a small improvement I can make and start start to integrate that into my life and then show up again and try to do it tomorrow. And all you really have to do is live a good day today. You don't have to worry about what's happening 66 days from now or nine months from now or whatever. Just try to live a good day today. It's so beautiful just what you said, because uh, in exactly that way, every diet I ever did going back 20 years, I wanted to kind of become enlightened in a way like mm. you know buddha sitting or bodhi sitting under the tree and he i wanted to achieve some state right of the diet was going to bring me to some state and then i would be cured and it was only later where i could apply the same kind of principles of sobriety where sobriety is going to be work for me every day and it gets easier it's not the same work that it was 20 years ago but it still worked to some degree and when i kind of thought about diet and lifestyle and health in that same way it took me so long to figure this out it was it was like this weight of like oh i don't i don't have to achieve this state because i will never achieve this state um so i i love what you said thank you for that i think this is kind of sometimes i think about behavior change as kind of like the layers of an onion so like the outermost layer is your results so you know lose 50 pounds or whatever it is you know like you know make a certain amount of money and then the next layer in are the actions that you take to try to achieve that. So, okay, if I want to lose a certain amount of weight, then I need to work out four days a week and I need to follow this diet, whatever. And usually we kind of stop at that layer and the implicit assumption is, hey, if I do these things and I achieve this result that I want, then I'll be the kind of person that I hope I, I will be. You know, like that we just sort of assume like my, I'll be better than, my life will be better than. And what I'm encouraging with the identity-based approach is let's kind of flip that on its head and say, who is the type of person I'd like to be? Or who is the type of, what is the type of identity I want to reinforce? And let's start there today, right now, and say, okay, I'd like to be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Great. As long as you show up and do one push-up or, you know, do one sit-up or whatever it is, like for that minute, you were that person. And so let's just cast a vote for your desired identity and then trust that if you are reinforcing the identity that you want to have and building habits that um, cast votes for being that kind of person, then the results will be the thing that comes naturally, not the identity that you'll by by showing up and living a good day and living in the way that you hope to live, that the results will come as a byproduct. And, you know, as someone who's very results focused and who has like fallen in that pitfall a lot in life. I think the truth is I still think about results a lot. You know, like you can never get away from it. You know, it's like this thing that just constantly trails you. Um, and so I find it useful to remind myself of that identity-based approach to kind of try to pull myself back to center over and over again, because it's so easy for the results to like overpower everything else and to get fixated on a number or to get fixated on an outcome. And um, for that reason, I find the identity-based approach to be useful. It's so beautiful. James, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And, and I think uh, you are truly doing God's work here. Thank you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to uh, talking again. Yes, sir. And now for the Q&A. 
Here's a question for you from Michael. Okay. Hi, Michael. He says, hi, Ethan. I'm really enjoying your podcast here in Northern Ireland. That's awesome. I love that. He says, I can really relate having gained and lost weight for the last 12 years, and I find your podcast a great support. Adaptive thermogenesis is a new concept to me, and I wanted to know if you have any idea if it's a big factor when people regain weight after a crash diet, or is it more likely a return to old habits? Okay, great question. Um, I think if we consider that a person was you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot to think about. Like the person who's now lost weight and is dealing with, uh, a reduction in energy needs that seems like it's greater than the amount of weight they lost. Right. And we consider that this person was gaining weight steadily. I would, I would think that there's going to be no way that they will just innately know to eat less. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, Paige? I think so. I think so. So you've got a person who's already overeating. Yeah. In life because they've gained weight. Yeah. Their body, whatever the mechanism, there's two mechanisms that control basically why we put food into our mouths. There's the homeostatic pathway. So the pathway is um, the body senses that its energy is uh, used and it needs more energy or it will need more energy or it posits that what it's doing is going to drive its energy down. So it needs more energy. So it creates hormones that make you hungry. That's the, that's one pathway. The other pathway is the hedonic pathway, which is basically like, um, emotions, environment. If you're, if you know, I think it was like, this is speculation, this part of it, this, I mean, that's a scientific thing, the hedonic pathway, but the speculative part is going like, we're in the woods, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago, hunting around for meat, and we come upon a berry bush. Now, this berry bush is not one we happen upon every day, we've maybe strayed off course looking for this meat, eat the fucking berries. Because mm -hmm. you don't know when you're going to see the berries again, right? So environment plays a big part in that. Advertising can play a big part in it. So suddenly there's a lot of people, especially in, you know, uh, the Western world that has a, an abundance of wealth and very cheap food that are overeating because they can. And you got companies that are advertising food and doing tests and going like, oh, did you know that yellow and red make people hungrier? Let's have all our advertisement be in yellow and red. And suddenly these are making, tr triggering us to be hungry when we're not. So there's all those factors. So I think unless you go into, I've just lost a bunch of weight. And I know that if I do all the calculations for the size that my body is and the amount of energy it should need, it's going to be a little bit less because that's what adaptive thermogenesis is. That's what losing weight does to the body. It suppresses it. So now your metabolism is going to be slightly lower than it would have been naturally. You're going to lose, you're going to gain weight because you're not actively sitting there going, how much can I eat without getting weight? Because you weren't doing that before. So it's kind of both, you know? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I think there, I think, I think with any of this, we can't just limit it to one thing and go like the guy gained weight because he ate bread. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true to me. It might be factual, but it's not honest. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the guy gained weight because he ate dairy. Maybe that's a tiny little sliver of the overall pie. So a guy loses a bunch of weight. Is he gaining weight partially because now his calories are less than they would have been if he was that weight without having lost weight? Maybe, but they're also going to, he's also going to, if he puts on weight, he's going to put on weight because, you know, the environment is telling him to overeat and, um, 
he he is uh, susceptible to weight gain if he doesn't track his energy inputs anyways as is evidenced by him having been overweight in the first place right you know so i i don't think i think at any state if a person is susceptible to weight gain and obesity in this modern world where we drive down the highway and every other exit has hundreds of thousands of next to free calories that are so delicious that we can eat and overeat ad nauseum, right? That there's got to be a little bit more than just assuming we're going to stop eating when we're full. That's all. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I okay. yeah, I think you I think you answered his question and God, I had not thought of that. I love I don't know. I like what people ask, so <laughs> I get to hear your answer to that. I didn't think of any of that. Um okay, cool. Well, I love the question all the way from Ireland. Thanks, Michael. If anyone Thanks, Michael. else Yeah, if anyone else wants to ask Ethan a question, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at americanglutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>